This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Blues, for me, it's not, you're not reinventing the wheel when you're playing blues music here. I mean, there's a language and a vocabulary in my mind when you're playing blues. And bringing it forward, I think, is important. People always bring that up. And I've heard a lot of modern blues rock people, and they're like, well, I'm just doing my own thing and bringing it forward, and which I think is great if, if that's what they're doing. But so, I also think there is a language and a vocabulary. And if you skip over a lot of that and you just say, I'm doing my own thing, and you don't really have a reference of historically the music, you know, where it came from, or they learned from listening to Buddy Guy or Muddy Waters. And then they made a record in the 60s. And then someone listened to that record, and it starts getting a little bit watered down if you don't listen to their originators, basically, what I'm getting. I think it's important to do that at some point. If you're going to call it blues, you should at least have somewhat of a vocabulary to where it came from. Welcome to Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to Matt Stubbs, guitarist for the blues band GA20. We discuss the band's new live album, Live in Loveland, knowing blues history and sparking a blues revival. Grab your earplugs, because the blues are coming to town. So I'm here with Matt Stubbs. One of the guitarists in GA20, an incredible blues band. So, Matt, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So, to get started, let's just do a couple of icebreakers, get to know each other, have a little fun. So, first question you get to have a guitar lesson by BB King, Freddie King, or Muddy Waters. Who are you picking? I would probably pick Freddie King. What's it about Freddie that you want to learn from him? Well, I love all three of those guitars. I grew up listening to all three an awful lot. That's a really hard question. But Freddie, I've gravitated towards Freddie my whole life just because he did a lot of instrumental music. And before GH1, even during now, but I've always been a huge fan of guitar instrumental music. I've put out three or four records of all original guitar music before GH20 ever started. So I've probably spent more time with Freddie King's music than the other two. I've spent a lot of time with BB King, but in a different way. Next question is, what? there's tons of them, and since we'll be talking about this great live album that you guys are putting out, what's your favorite live album? Do you have one that you always go to? Live at the Regal, B.B. King, just because that was one of the first blues records my father gave me, and that's I'll probably listen to that record more than any other blues record, just because when I was a kid, I listened to it every day. Yeah, so there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in that one. Yeah, I was listening to that one this morning. It's a great live album. You've got one tribute album out. What's another artist that you would love to do a tribute album to? Man, I don't know. Maybe none. There's so many artists I like, but that record happened by chance and opportunity, and it was great, and I'm glad we did it, and people really seemed to connect with it. But it was not something I ever thought I would do. I'm not a huge tribute band type guy. The story behind that was we were supposed to put out our record, Crackdown. It was all done, ready to go, and then we know what happened in 2020, so... That year, we decided to shelf it, hold off until we knew we could be touring again and doing proper PR and all that stuff. And in July 2020, Bruce, the president owner of Alligator Records, who I've known for a long time, had saw the band come through before everything shut down and reached out to us to 
record for Alligator, but we were already signed up to a multi-record deal with Coal Mine Records. But I saw an opportunity because Alligator is a very legendary blues label, pretty much the last one standing. And so I wanted to figure out a way to work with them, at least even for just one record. So I proposed the idea that Coal Mine and Alligator both put a record out by us. And 2021 was going to be the 50th anniversary of Alligator Records. And they started that label to put out Hound Dog Taylor's first full-length record because nobody else would sign Hound Dog. So Bruce started the label. So that was my idea. I was like, we're just sitting at home. We love Hound Dog. There's a lot of similarities to that band. Two guitars, drums, no bass. It's really raw blues. And we've been compared to him in a lot of ways for our career. So it was just kind of a fun idea. We were at home. It was something to concentrate on. I ended up building a recording studio at my house to record that record. And we had just finished an all-original album, Crackdown. So we were tapped out of original material at the moment. So that's how it happened. And it was really fun. And everything lined up. Both labels were excited about it. It was a fun project. And it was challenging in a lot of ways to like try to make a record that really could try to get the spirit of that music, but was still our own. Still make it sound like us, but capture at least some of the stuff that Hound Dog and the House Rockers did. I don't see us doing another full tribute record. I'm sure we'll cover songs, but I'm not saying never, but I don't think that's our goal as a band to be putting out a bunch of tribute records. I can appreciate that. That's really cool. And it's really cool that you got two record labels to work together. That seems like it's yeah, a great. Yeah. fairly uncommon occurrence. Coal Mine's done it in the past with their labels. That was the first time Alligator has ever done it. When I proposed the idea, I don't, it took a minute to explain and figure out how it would work for everybody so everybody would benefit but i think it did i think everybody was happy with the result have you thought about going into politics could you yeah. cross the aisle and solve world hunger and create world peace like no, blues guitars enough for me <laughs> that's a tall order next question i know you're a student of hendrix what's one of his songs that you just still have no idea how he does it and blows your mind every time all of it i don't know i can't play like hendrix at all my favorite song by hendrix is red house which is a straight ahead blues song everything he did was amazing i don't listen to hendrix that much anymore every time i hear it it blows me away but i spent a lot of time when i first started playing guitar like most guitars being in awe and really loving it but i'm out of a different direction and went after a lot of the players i think that he listened to like i really love early buddy guy Johnny Guitar Watson and these other guys. So I, for some reason, very quickly, I gravitated to those guys, a generation before Hendrix. Very cool. Last one, and this may be a hard one. Tell me a misconception that you commonly see about the blues. Oh, there's a lot, man. One that we encounter as a band, when we say we're blues, people automatically, not everybody, but it feels like more than most, will automatically think when they hear blues, Long guitar, slow blues, long guitar solo, drawn out guitar shredding, more of like the modern blues thing, I guess, is what you'd call it. The song is the platform just to get to the guitar solo, and then it goes on for a long time. The blues that I grew up listening to didn't really do that, and I don't think GA20 on a live show will open it up. There's definitely lots of guitar, but there's not a lot of that really self-indulgent guitar solo, and we try to write songs, and we try to write melodies, and we try to write moods outside of the Hound Dog record that does some longer songs on there, but all our other songs, all our other original stuff is usually like two and a half to three and a half minutes or songs, more like early Beatles records or rock and roll records, Chuck Berry records, Bo Diddley records. So I feel like when I say the word blues, the word blues has this like PR problem where people automatically go to this British invasion from there till now. They're not thinking 50s or early 60s blues. Fascinating. And I want to get into that was one of my questions I want to talk about. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. I appreciate you indulging me on those. So that's just some fun ways to get to know each other a little bit. But I want to talk about your new upcoming live album, Live in Loveland. So the first thing I want to know is why'd you choose Plaid Room Records as the place to record that album at? 
our record label, Coal Mine Records, that's their record store. So on the first floor, Loveland's in Ohio, right outside of Cincinnati. So they have this great record store that the two brothers own, Bob and Terry. They own the label and the store. So we were just starting a tour and we were routing through that area. We were going to crash with them for a night. And they often do, when the store closes, they'll put it on little concerts at the store with their artists or sometimes other artists. So that was already arranged. And then I think it was like the week before I just threw the idea out because he also engineers a lot of music. I just threw the idea out because the show was sold out. I said, what if we try recording and getting a live recording out of it? No stress. And he had an old Tascam tape machine. He rigged it up the night before. Like we rolled in. It was like a 13 hour drive to get there. I rolled in. It was like 9 p.m. And he was like in the, the shop was closed. But he was in there like working on the tape machine. And the next day we hooked it all up and we weren't sure we we're going to get anything. You, you never know. But it was good. Yeah, it came out good. So it was worth putting out. That's, I love Plaid Room. I've never been there, but I've ordered multiple times yeah. from them. And I can attest they are a quality record store for anybody who is looking. I did want to talk about, you have a couple of live EPs out, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was the decision to do a full length live album? This live record that we're putting out now, actually, we did before those EPs. Every release schedules changed just because of all the COVID stuff. The two that you're talking about, one is called Live Volume 1. That was the EP. And that was actually live performances. They weren't necessarily, I think, I gotta think back. I think two of the songs were at a venue that we recorded live. And then the other two songs were performance videos that we made for whatever, social media or YouTube or whatever. But we did it live. Like we went and set up almost like a field recording. We just set up and we recorded. So that was something also we put out during COVID. Crackdown was shelved. And then before we came up with the hound dog idea, we had these four live tunes that were already done. And we decided just to put it out as a seven inch, two songs aside, just to have some material continuing to come out. And they sounded good. I thought the song sounded good. That was that one. And then the second EP you're talking about was after the hound dog Taylor record came out. Again, we were in Loveland hanging out, doing some promo stuff and they have a recording studio there. So we just set up and did four or five songs. It was a video shoot and it was ended up being on this, um, thing for Amazon called Coda. The Coda Collection is this TV station. If you have Amazon TV, they'll broadcast concerts. So we recorded it for that. It was a video. And then again, it came out pretty good. We did that direct to tape. So we decided to put that out. That's not on vinyl. That just came out on a CD and on streaming stuff. So when did y'all record The Loveland? The, this link Live in Loveland was, I think it's January 9th, 2020. So right before wow. the show. Yep. So months. you've been sitting on this for a while. Why the why the decision to release it now? I was sitting on it, and then during COVID, to be productive, I decided to mix it. So during that whole time, I had a lot of time off, and so my engineer and myself mixed it, and we weren't sure we were going to put it out. I think I started mixing this before the Hound Dog thing even happened. I can't remember, but yeah, we just had we were just trying to capitalize on being home and being productive and stacking up catalog stuff. So when things did open up, we could just be on the road and not be too stressed about making another record. We have another whole record. That's done that will become as an acoustic album that will be coming out next year. And now we're just starting an original electric record now. So trying to stay ahead of it. So why did you decide to choose this show? It seems like this was a bit of a truncated set for you guys versus some of your more lengthy shows. Why this show? We recorded the whole night. This record, those songs are just the ones that I thought came out the best. Gotcha. So we, we have like more songs, but we just didn't put them on the record. There was a lot of things, man. It was recorded at our label's hometown record store mm -hmm. a lot of those people there we were a new band in january 2020 the band had just started in 2018 our first record had just come out so we were still a new band 
going through there. And a lot of those people that came and saw us, it was their first time seeing us in Ohio. And since they've seen us, we just went through again. We went through Columbus and Cincinnati last week. And a lot of those people are really excited about the record. They were all there. We said that night, hey, we're recording. We're going to try to get a record out of it. But it's been a couple of years. So I think people forgot about it. One thing I do want to talk about, you mentioned it earlier, is you have the short tracks. Most of your songs are in that two to three, three and a half minute range. The longest track is around four minutes on this album. What is the reason for the shorter songs versus not going out on the jam any? In the course of a night, there are times where we open it up, especially this live record doesn't have any Hound Dog on it because it was recorded before we even made that Hound Dog record. Those songs tend to be a little bit longer just by, uh, that's how Hound Dog wrote them and played on them. So we try to capture that. But our stuff, man, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't write songs. And Pat doesn't write songs with the idea of it's about the guitar solo. It's the opposite. If the song needs a guitar solo, we put a guitar solo in it. And so it's about the song and the melody. And that's it's no different like old traditional country songs. There's not these like 18-minute ripping guitar solos in it. There's a nice little solo that complements the song. And same thing with a lot of that 50s and 60s blues. If I listen to a Slim Harpo record, there's not these crazy psychedelic jam now don't get me wrong i like psychedelic music i love electric mud by muddy waters even though he hated that record where it's more psychedelic and it jams out more but the songs that we've written at least up to this point for the most part are shorter songs and we released a single not too long ago just on streaming called atl which is more of that electric mud vibe where it's an instrumental and it's loud and bombastic and stretching out and so we're happy to do it when it's Something that if it serves the song, we like it. But I mean, I'm a guitar player and I don't really want to listen to a nine minute slow blues guitar solo by most guitarists. <laughs> I don't care how good they are. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems to me like the vibe that I'm catching from you is that it just doesn't fit the outfit. For you guys, it doesn't fit GA20 to do these long, lengthy solos. If we wrote a song that it made sense to have that in there, yeah. But like I said, I don't, I'm not writing songs I never have. Even when I, all my instrumental records that are guitar instrumental records, I'm never writing a song and be like, oh, I want to just showcase a ripping guitar solo on this one it's about even those songs i wrote were all melodies and were, i'm trying to create a mood or i really like production so i produce all our records to me the melody in the song is cool and then the next thing that's really important is the way it sounds the way it comes across jumps out of the speakers more than a crazy guitar solo you can just go on tiktok or instagram and find a million people sitting on a couch shredding really fast or technically they're great but i like albums and songs you know there's one song that's one of the originals that you have on there that I really enjoy is Dry Run. I think mm -hmm. the thing that I enjoy most about it is it, it's a story that I can connect to. It's something that I feel like pretty much everybody's gone through at some point or another. Sure. So I, can you tell me a little bit about the story or the writing behind that one? Pat wrote those lyrics, okay. you know, just from him telling the audience and stuff. It was about, he was talking to some girl and he thought this girl was interested in him and they were gabbing and then turns out later on he figures out she was just practicing flirting or whatever for somebody else so that i think that's where the song started for him one of the things that i've read about you guys as well is that you're a live band first is that a fairly accurate statement that i've read y yes yep absolutely so i hear that a lot from artists that like they still put out great studio work, but they say they're a live band first. For you guys, for GA20, what does that mean for you guys? I think the difference between saying we're a live band and then going to the studio and doing different, like when we record, at least up to this point, all our records, we're in the studio playing live together. I'm not going in it's a very like 50s, early 60s blues approach or, or jazz approach where we set up the drums, the amps, everything's in one room. I'm not isolating instruments and stuff in case there's a mistake so I can go back and fix that one little part if there's a mistake either we keep it or we do it again as a band 
where a lot of other bands will go in and there's a click track and the guitar player plays by himself and then the drums come in and they play by themselves that we've never done that. I mean, there's times on the studio records where we might add a second or third little guitar part here or there, but the actual performances are the three of us playing together. That's when I say we're a live band. That's what I mean. I'm fascinated about the power of a trio. It seems like there's such a magical thing to trios that gets lost. And I think especially one thing that I dislike about a lot of aging blues artists and things like that is the bands get bigger over time. You know, yeah. I saw Joe Walsh a couple of years ago and he had 18 people backing him and it was terrible. The sound gets so sanitized. But for GA20, I want to know why the decision to do a trio. Initial decision was when I started the band with Pat. The band started because I played guitar with a, another blues artist for years, Charlie Musselwhite, is a harmonica player. And that, in 2018, he was making his second re record with Ben Harper's band, and they were going out together. So he was going out with Ben's band. And I, myself and the rest of Charlie Musselwhite's band had a year off. We weren't going out with Ben's band. So that was the first time in a long time where you know, I wasn't sure I had a year off. I didn't know how I was going to make some money. I don't have a day job right So... Pat was around town and coming to a lot of my gigs and he was really getting interested more and more in Chicago blues and traditional blues in general. So I came up with the idea just to start a little trio with him just to work around town out of necessity and then also play some music that I really liked. There really wasn't a lot of that going on in New England at the time. There's some older bands doing it that are great, but on the younger scene, like in rock clubs and stuff like that, it wasn't it really wasn't existent at all. So that's how we started. But to keep it a trio, again, it was... Part of this was to make money, like I needed to work. So we kept it lean and Pat and I both can play bass. We both have played bass in bands leading up to this, but we both wanted to play guitar in this. And there's a lot of these old Chicago blues records that have just two guitars and drums and sometimes harmonica or something. No bass. One guy plays the bottom, which is the low end. So we started that way and we just picked songs that either was that instrumentation, or we could adapt the songs into that and you wouldn't miss the bass, really. From there, we made our first record and it's just become our sound. We've had many nights where we have friends or bass players that sit in for a few songs and you would think, or at least I would think, oh, they're, it's gonna all of a sudden they're going to get up and it's going to feel fuller and we're going to be like, oh, maybe we should get a bass player. And it's never happened. Every time a bass player gets up to me, I'm like, oh, I don't know why, but it feels less special and almost more ordinary because that's what every band these days sound like. You always have a bass player and guitar. And as soon as you play a blues shuffle or slow blues, it instantly sonically goes into the space. Now that's, I'm not saying that we would never use bass on anything. I mean, there's lots of bands that have changed through the years, but, and when we do a lot of these other shows and festivals, I notice sometimes these bands that have lots of instruments, like you mentioned, and I don't know how it happens, but sometimes they sound smaller. They don't sound as big or powerful sometimes is trios and trios are arranged correctly and have space definitely what i was hitting at every trio i've seen every good trio i've seen has been so much more energetic you felt the music better right. and that's one of the things that i come across with you guys but so talk about no bass do y'all record bass when you do an album nope so how do you pick who does the low end and gets the conversation it just depends on uh, hound dog stuff i'm not a very good slide player at all i can barely play slide and Pat barely played much slide before we made that record. But when we decided to do it, went down that wormhole and really worked on it. So on that particular record, he did all the slide work, which ends up being mostly the soloing. And I played all the low end. But on the other records, Lonely Soul and Crackdown, I'd say it's probably, I don't know, 65, 70 percent. I'm playing more of the leads than him. He's playing more of the bottoms. 
And I think sometimes when he's singing too, playing the bottom part, I don't know, you have to ask him. I would think sometimes it might be easier, but maybe it could be harder depending on the rhythm. But yeah, we just switch. Sometimes we split it up during the song. Like I might be playing the top parts while he's singing, but then he takes the solo and I switch and play the bottom. It just depends on the song. We're not really hung up on who gets the solos or whatever. We get called all different things now, not on our accord, but like people say, oh, you're like punk blues or you're like rock and roll. Or you're blues. I don't know. I call it blues since day one almost just being stubborn and when we started the band and some things business things started happening in a good way a lot of people were like oh you shouldn't call it blues because if you call it blues your ceiling is lower people don't like blues or they think blues is like i said earlier a different thing and i know some other artists that are doing very well that are blues artists and they've put out records and purposely stayed away from using the word blues even though they're clearly traditional blues i was just stubborn about it we started as a blues band even if we play some stuff that might be a little garage rocky at times or have a country influence i can always find a similarity or somewhere where i pulled that reference from a blues guy i don't know so i guess just being stubborn because i love blues and i think all these other styles of timeless music have had revivals like country music and jazz jazz a little bit less but country music and funk and garage rock and psych rock all these things that happened in the 60s or 50s lately have had these big revivals especially country music and i really don't feel like blues has there's some people that are like gary clark jr who's a rock star now people consider him blues and he can play blues great but he's not putting out straight ahead blues records anymore he has and he can play it but they're more like rock records so I don't know if I can save blues enough times and we're playing stuff that in my mind is pretty traditional for the most part. Maybe it will hip some people to it. What is blues's place in modern culture? As you were saying, like you've seen these revivals of all these other genres. So where is blues right now? What do you think it's at? Where is it at? I don't think it's ever going to go anywhere. I think so much of American music is based off of it. It's in so many different styles. There's lots of blues festivals and there are some young artists coming up right now, like Cedric Burnside and these guys that are Definitely getting on lots of music festivals that aren't quote-unquote blues festivals. They're Americana festivals, or they're just music festivals in general. I think there needs to be more of that, more younger bands playing music traditionally, but also reaching out and trying to get gigs and shows that are not quote-unquote just the blues market. I mean, we play the blues market, we're doing it, but we also make a big effort to try to play rock clubs and open for bands that are not blues bands, but like what we're doing. So yeah, that's, that's just our approach. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen in the next 10 years for, with other bands. The way you talk about the blues, it sounds like you're a bit of a purist when it comes to it. Is that accurate? I don't know. What, what does that mean? I don't know. I like traditional blues. I like, like I said, I don't know. It depends on, I like Electric Mud, which is, I don't, most blues purists probably don't like that record because and Muddy Waters hated that record. And Howlin' Wolf made a record with that same lineup of musicians and he hated that record when he did it. I like that stuff and I like all kinds of music. It's not, oh, I only want to play blues, I love blues. Like I put out an instrumental psych rock record a few years ago. But when I listen to blues music, yeah, for the most part, I want to listen, I don't know, Earl Hooker, Early Buddy Guy, Johnny Guitar Watson, Gatemouth Brown, Freddie King, T-Bone Walker, Howlin' Wolf. Those are the guys, when I think of, oh, I'm gonna put a blues record on, Slim Harpo, that's what I'm leaning towards, Bo Diddley. And then creeping into rock and roll, like the Chuck Berries and stuff like that, I love. Other than maybe Cream, I'm not necessarily reaching for Eric Clapton Blues Records or who's other guy like that. I don't know who, the ones that were like a little bit later that are very British blues. I love the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, but I like like their rock and roll kind of stuff. And 
prep and reading about you guys beforehand, I kept coming across the term retro. How do you feel about that term retro, especially when it's applied to your... I don't really care either way. I'd rather someone say it's retro. To me, that means, oh, okay, so it probably sounds like those records I like. That being said, I'm not like our last record, Crackdown, when I made that record, I wasn't trying to make a record that would fool the listener and say, oh, this was recorded in 62. It's obviously not. But I do like to capture timeless tones and sonics in the songwriting. I like that style of songwriting and stuff like that. I like the word timeless or I like, they're going to call it, I don't care, they call it retro. I'd rather be retro than like something that I don't like that and be called modern. You obviously have a lot of sentimentality and respect for the music that you're making. Do you ever have personal emotions of feeling like maybe I'm being a bit too derivative or it, does that ever cross you or is it? Never. Nope. I just try to make records that I would want to listen to. There's like little checklists as a producer or a songwriter or arranger when I'm making these records. For instance, I like songs with hooks. I like catchy songs. I, I do like pop music. So I try to always remember that when we're making a record and is this song memorable? Are people going to be able to connect with it? Are people going to want to listen to it again? Those things are the things I think of. I'm not, that's what I'm after. I'm not worried about it. I've made all kinds of different records. I've produced other stuff too. That's not just straight up blues, but we're a blues band. So I'm trying to make records like that I'd want to listen to. And it's, I do want to clarify, I, I do not think GA20 is derivative at all. And that's, I was not accusing you of being derivative. I was oh, just curious. Yeah. No, I just, I want that to be very clear because I enjoy you guys we're, thoroughly. You're not blues for me. It's not, you're not reinventing the wheel when you're playing blues music here. There's a language and a vocabulary in my mind when you're playing blues and bringing it forward, I think is important. People always bring that up. And I've heard a lot of other people, modern people do modern blues, rock people. And they're like, I'm just doing my own thing and bringing it forward. And which I think is great if that's what they're doing. I also think there is a language and a vocabulary. And if you skip over a lot of that and you just say, I'm doing my own thing and you don't really have a reference historically, the music, where it came from, or if you just start with someone that years later, someone like that was basically, they learned from listening to Buddy Guy or Muddy Waters. And then they made a record in the 60s. And then someone listened to that record and it starts getting a little bit watered down you know what I mean? If you don't listen to the originators, basically what I'm getting, I think it's important to do that at some point. If you're going to call it blues, you should at least have somewhat of a vocabulary to where it came from. That's one thing that I come across a lot in the blues. It feels like is you always hear about the lineage of the artists and things like that. It's always, we covered this song because we wanted to turn people onto lead belly and things like that. Is that something that's distinctly the blues in your opinion? Lead belly or the people doing that? Just the people doing that, not necessarily Lead Belly, but just it seems like there's such a respect. Yeah, I think historically, yeah, I mean that people, it's, it's a traditional music. You pass it along, pass it along. As we start to wrap up here, I just want to. What else is on GA20's radar for the rest of the year? You told me about acoustic album potentially coming out next year. So what else? That'll be next year, but really, so we have this live record coming out, and that comes out March 17th, so next month, and then touring nonstop. Now. Through March, we're doing a lot of Northeast dates where we live near Boston and Rhode Island, and we're going to Canada. And then when April hits, we do go out to the West Coast, all the way down the Pacific Northwest, all the way down through LA, down through Texas, over to Florida, back up to Boston. And then at the end of May, we head to Europe and the UK for a month. And then we come back, and then it's festival season on the States. So just pretty much touring and promoting these records. Crackdown only came out about five months ago, the studio record. So that came out, and then th this record six months later. So we're pretty much promoting two records at the same time. It seems like you're tour dogs. Do you just enjoy playing live that much? That's a lot of touring. Yeah, I, I do. I enjoy traveling. I love playing live. It's my favorite thing. 
it's also I feel necessary when you're building a band. We're still a very new band. You got to get out there and get in front of people. It, it still blows me away, especially mostly in the blues scene. When you play a blues festival, or we play a blues festival. We just did one of these blues cruise things where you're up for a week. There's like 30 bands on this cruise. Not to sound cocky or anything, but it surprises me. Like in the blues scene, we're about to put out our fourth record, and we've had really good PR teams and really good labels behind it. How many people came up and said, oh, "I've never heard of you guys," and I'm like, "Really? You've never even heard the name yet?" It's been like. We've been doing it for five years and we've been putting out all these records. We've got all this PR. We're on all the radio stations and goes to show you, I think you got to get out there and boots on the ground and really put in the miles. So hopefully you get to meet these people. And I think we're a live band. I think I like our records. I like the way they sound, but I think we're for the most part, always better live. What is defined success for you guys? Is it playing Madison Square Garden or just getting to be a solid blues band that has a good touring following? I'd love to play Madison Square Garden, yeah. I'd like to take the I'd like to take the band as far as I can take it, as far as many, I want as many people to hear us and want to come to our shows and buy our records and also bring awareness to at least the blues music I like and I think the band likes. Let's end there. Let's end with you giving the people some homework. Give me a couple of artists that you think really deserve a shout out and they should go check out, get some lineage and respect going. Earl Hooker, he's got a bunch of records. A lot of his stuff's instrumental or he has singers on it. I love Earl Hooker, everything he's ever done. Buddy Guy and Junior Wells, any record that they're on together. Hoodoo Man Blues was one of my favorite records of all time. Any Johnny Guitar Watson. Once the 70s hit, the 80s, it went more of an R&B and then even hip-hop rap thing. But early on, like 50s Johnny Guitar Watson is some of my favorite music of all time. Guitar Slim and all Freddie King, all BB King, of course. Buddy Guy's on his farewell tour right now, correct? Yeah, that's what I saw. Yeah, that's I've been fortunate enough to see him several times, and it is amazing that he can still dazzle an audience like he can. He's, I think he's I think he's the best blues singer alive. Still, I don't, know, I don't know anyone that can sing blues better than him right now. So, well, Matt, I really appreciate your time. Thanks today for chatting. Go check out Live in Loveland, fantastic new blues album, live blues album. So, Matt, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for taking time, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of Yesterday's Concert. Thoughts? Similar experiences? Disagree? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. Or you can email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com. If you're feeling kind, give us a review on Apple Podcast. Otherwise, until next time, give us a subscribe, check out our website, yesterdaysconcert.com, and most importantly, take care of your shoes.